0: Began what I hope will be a continual practice here in, in, at Calvary Chapel, and that is um, uh, memorizing God's Word together. Uh, we began with a very familiar verse of Scripture last week, which was John 3:16. Uh, today we're going to add one more to your study, and, and uh, uh, but I'll have to I have to confess that I. Totally forgot to get it into the bulletin, so I'm going to re- just ask you to be diligent in, in writing the reference down and and memorizing it. Uh, we uh, are mes- memorizing our verses of scripture in the King James Bible, so most everyone should have a King James Bible. If you don't, you should get one. But uh, uh, we're going to read them both today before we read our our text. And uh, so, uh, but before we do that, I have to mention one thing. I need to read to you or at least quote to you what it says in Genesis chapter one, verse one, because it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I mentioned that because today, uh, supposedly, uh, many people are uh, uh, in the world are celebrating the 200th anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin, almost to the extent that they are Making him some somewhat godlike, and um, what saddens me is that some parts of of Christendom and the church are trying to marry uh, faith and science in such a way that says, "Well, we we need to kind of open our mind to." Uh, you know, other things that uh, may be more scientific than what uh, the Bible may have to say. But may I say to you that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if he did it, he did it in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. And those days were single days, just like we live today. Because God can do that. We don't have to fit with science. Science fits with God. So, I'm very thankful to say that I believe what the Word of God says about creation and that God is able to do His work His way. And we should stand upon that. And He's the one that we came to worship here today and not anybody else. All right, I've got that off my chest. All right. Let's all stand. Ah, thank you for just bearing with me. John 3.16. Let's say the reference together and then let's read it. And then we're going to say it by memory because you should by already. This was your homework for the week. John 3.16. Let's say it. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Cut the screen. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Today, I'd like to add to your uh, scriptures for memorization: Romans chapter one, verse sixteen. Romans chapter one, verse sixteen. We're not going to cut it for today, so you got you, you get a break on this. You get you get till next week to do it the right way. So Romans one sixteen. Let's read it together. Romans one sixteen, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let that be your memorization verse for this week. And again, in the, we, we're going to keep them in the King James. All right. Well, our reading this morning uh, from... Uh, The book of Acts chapter 19 is also our text. That's verses 13 through 20. So we're going to read this in the New King James Version. Acts 19 verses 13 through 20, as we do every Sunday. Let's read together. Let's read aloud. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked naked, And wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them. And it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank you and we bless you for your precious word. We ask today that you will have your way with us. That as we open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears to your word, that you would bless us and pour out your spirit upon us. That we, Lord, will come to a greater understanding and knowledge of your word. But Lord, not just to fill our minds with this knowledge, but our hearts as well, that we would be stirred into action to do those things that would honor and bless you. And we ask, Lord God, today that as we consider these uh, thoughts and these ideas, these things that certainly your word is encouraging us To focus upon today. That more than anything else. We will come to know Jesus. Personally. Intimately. That we might have all communion and fellowship with him. Each and every day of our lives. Until that day when he comes for us. And gathers us together. And takes us home. Lord we thank you. For the blessing and promise of your word. We ask all of these things today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Y'all may be seated. Not too many days ago, I was reading through and studying a short daily devotional that was based for that particular day on John 15, verse 15. The words of Jesus who said, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. The first statements by the devotional author concerning this particular passage were given in two questions. And I want you to pay attention to these questions because I'm going to repeat them again at the end of our study. The first question was this, do you want to be a friend of Jesus or just a casual acquaintance? Do you want to be a friend of Jesus or just a casual acquaintance? Now that's a question that we need to ask ourselves in examination of our hearts. And then the second question was this, do you want to know about him or would you like to really know him? That first question really stirred my heart. Do you want to be a friend of Jesus or or just a casual acquaintance? Now, think about it. Yesterday was Valentine's Day. And somehow we all just become so loving. We're saying happy Valentine's to people we don't even know. And telling others, would you be my valentine? And it's, you know, you pass out candies and make others fat and all that kind of stuff, you know. But when it comes down to it, you really don't mean it to anybody except the person you really love. And there are those that you know, that you have a a, a, just an intimacy with, and a relationship that is pure and right. And there's just knowledge. And others are just casual acquaintances. You know them, you might like them, you might not like them, but you know about them, but you don't know a lot about them. So we know, we understand this question. Do you want to be a friend of Jesus or just a casual acquaintance? Now, this author of this devotion went on to speak of developing and cultivating a personal and intimate relationship with Christ by first of all interacting with God's Word, of course, hearing God's Word. Secondly, by engaging in the Lord in prayer. And thirdly, by spending time with Jesus' friends, which is other believers. And this is how we cultivate that friendship with Christ and that fellowship with Christ. But I bring this up because I believe that uh, one major problem in the church of Jesus Christ today is that so many uh, believers in, in Christ... And I should say, many so-called believers in Christ can only claim to know about the Lord, but not truly know Him in a personal and intimate way. And should we examine what God's Word says about this dilemma, we find the very root of the predicament. Take, for example, the words of James in his letter, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. The key verse here is verse 19, but we'll get there in just a moment. And I need to give you the context of what's being said. Verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? In other words, can this kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, Is dead. In other words, it's a dead faith. But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, notice verse 19. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Think about that for just a moment. Stop there. and Just think about that verse. You believe that there is one God. He's speaking to the church. You believe that there is one God. Well, you do well. But then he says, even the demons believe and they tremble. How many people today in the church of Jesus Christ are trembling at the holiness of God? Trembling at the power of God? Trembling at the very awesomeness of God? Not many. I hope we do. But there are some who just believe up to the level of these demons. But the demons not only believe, they tremble. And verse 20 says, but you want to know, O foolish man? But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And the crux of James' argument was to show the contrast between dead belief and living belief. Dead belief and living belief. In other words, there is a belief that does not lead to salvation and a belief that does lead to salvation. So consider, if you will, the demons or evil spirits. Because they believe in God. They even know that God exists. There are some people today who... Try to sound intellectual and call themselves new atheists. Oh, well, we don't believe in God, but if you if you listen to their arguments, if you listen to what they're saying, they say, "Oh, we don't believe that there's a God. We don't believe that God exists. We don't believe that anything spiritual exists." As a matter of fact, you know, we 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 we're, we we've evolved. You know, we were talking about Darwin earlier. We evolved, and really, there's no purpose and meaning in life. This is what they believe. So when you take God out of the picture, you take the Word of God out of the picture, you take Christ out of the picture, you take anything spiritual out of the picture, you know, whatever side of the spiritual equation. What do you have? But the demons believe. They know there's a God. They even know He exists. They even believe, by the way, in the deity of Jesus Christ. I want you to take, for instance, what it says in Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. It talks about Jesus crossing the over the, uh, the Galilee it says when he, come to, when he had come to the other side to the country of the Gergesenes there met him two demon possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way and suddenly they cried out notice they being the spirits that were in this man uh, in the two men I should say so there were one in each one but they cried out saying what have we to do with you Jesus you son of God What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Here you have come, or have you come here to torment us before the time? So they recognized who Jesus was. They called him the son of God. And by the way, for them to call him the son of God was to say that he was the Messiah. Now in Mark chapter 1, the next gospel over, Mark chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, when Jesus was in Capernaum, we're told that he went to a synagogue. And now verse 23 says there was a man in the synagogue with, with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, let us alone. Notice, let us alone. This man was filled with demons. Well, we could say that there were legion of demons in him. But there was a man in their synagogue here who was crying out. Or the demon was to this man. Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Again, the recognition of who Jesus was. The very fact that He was Messiah. The very fact that He was deity. But you have to understand, the demons are not saved. They believe in God. But the demons are not saved. Their belief has not affected their lives and behavior at all. And the sad thing is that too, that too many professing believers in Jesus Christ have only risen or ascended to the level of belief held by demons. That's why James says you believe in God while well, you do well. Even the demons believe, but they tremble. And in our text today, we meet seven men. And they are really among a number of other exorcists. But these seven men were sons of a Jewish chief priest whose knowledge of Jesus was superficial at best and superstitious at its very worst. And I want you to remember that God had been doing extraordinarily powerful miracles through the hands of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. We looked at these uh, verses 11 and 12 last week. And we saw just that, that mention of what God was doing through the hands of Paul. Extraordinarily powerful miracles. And this was certainly drawing a lot of attention there in Ephesus, especially among the people of that region whose minds were hammered with occultic practices and the like. In other words, their minds were inculcated with occultic practices and the like, which, of course, Paul had nothing to do with. Paul didn't do things their way. As a matter of fact, Paul just submitted to the Holy Spirit of God. It was God doing the works through Paul. We saw that last week. Was God doing miracles through the hands of Paul? But people are always fascinated by the sensational or the fantastic, right? People are fascinated by the sensational. Years and years ago, some of you may remember this, some of you are as old as I am or older. But nobody's going to admit that. But some of you remember around this area that uh, there used to be a magazine coming out of Juarez called Alarma. Remember that? Who Who remembers Alarma? Yeah, okay, you know what it was like. You know, it was a magazine that had pictures in it. And the pictures were just about, you know, gruesome murders and gruesome kinds of things that happened. And they always showed the pictures. It was an awful magazine. But this is the way it was. Oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. This is terrible. That's the way we looked at it. Right? You know, we, this is horrible. <laughs> we just have this fascination with the sensational. Driving by an accident, you know, the first thing we do is just kind of drive slower. See who's hurt, see how bad it is. And there were a number of men that were itching to borrow. And to try out a new method of exorcising demons. But the, what this would end up being was actually an exercise in futility. That was a play on words, by the way. I just thought I'd mention that. For anybody who caught it, the exorcists were exorcising in futility. But anyway, forget the joke. And so we come to Acts 19, verses 13 and 14. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? It should tell you immediately they had no idea who Jesus was. And they had no idea who Paul was, in the sense of knowing them intimately or knowing about, uh, knowing fully well what they were, or who they were, or what they represented. They just used the name like a formula. They just used the name like a magic word. They took it upon themselves. By the way, that's a very scary phrase in the Bible. That they took it upon themselves. You know, we should never take anything upon ourselves. We are to do the will of God, not our own. They took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had, had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, and also there were seven sons of Sceva. A Jewish chief priest who did so. In other words, they did the very same thing. They went out there and said to, to people that were demon-possessed, where well, they called on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And they said, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, a revival was taking place in Ephesus. A true revival of the Spirit of God was taking place in Ephesus. And some key evidences that we've already examined So far in the last few weeks are these. First of all, the Word of God was being preached. Always remember that. That's the first thing that needs to be understood. The Word of God was being preached. Secondly, the special miracles of God were being seen and experienced. And it brings to mind the order that we talked about last week. That the preaching of the Word of God came first and then signs followed. Signs followed them who preached the Word of God. So the Word of God was being preached. The special miracles of God were being seen and experienced. But today we find that another thing that happens in this revival is that the false prophets were being exposed. The false prophets were being exposed. Now the wording in verse 13 indicates that there were men in that time who were wandering Jewish exorcists. It calls them itinerant Jewish exorcists in the New King James. But they were just wandering Jewish exorcists, relatively gypsy-like. Traveling from place to place, seeking to cast out demons from people, probably for a price. Now, the Jewish, whoops, the Jewish historian, Josephus, states in his Antiquities that this custom of Jewish exorcism supposedly came from Solomon, and became a tradition. He, he writes, in, in effect, that, that Solomon had received certain gifts from the Lord and went about seeking those who were possessed by demons and began to cast them out, so on and so forth. And people began to follow his example and so on. But many of them would use, you know, who, who began to follow in this tradition, would use the names of Bible people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Solomon even, and others. You come down to the time of, 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 of the apostles, and the greatest name, of course, then is the name of Jesus, which certainly annoyed the rabbis. The rabbis didn't want anybody to use the name of Jesus. Because these exorcists were, were trying to enhance their reputation by invoking that glorious name above all names. But being the gypsies that they were, living a circus type existence, moving from place to place, staying only for a short time here and there. They usually made a living off the superstitions of the people. They were there long enough to find out what the people feared. They would play upon the fears of the people. They felt that the power lay in using the name of God in a formulaic, mechanical way. In fact, it wasn't unusual for Jewish priests and their sons to cast out demons. There's reference of that in Luke chapter 11. Jesus is the one who makes reference of it, by the way. Luke 11, verses 14 through 19. And Jesus himself was casting out a demon at this time. It says he was casting out a demon. It was mute, a demon. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled. But some of them said... He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, notice this. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? So Jesus is already making reference to the fact that there were certain priests who had sons who were out there trying to cast demons out of people. If I cast demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. So I mention this because it brings us to the sons of Sceva in our text. A Jewish chief priest. And I want you to note how degenerate and how far the family had forsaken the high calling of God. You see, it was given to those who are in the family of Levi, or Levi, that was the priestly line, that they as priests were to bring up their male children as priests as well. But what we have here is a picture of a man who is a priest and he has seven sons and they're out there trying to find ways of casting out demons from people. And they're far from God and they're far from the high calling of God that God had given them in their family. And in wanting to cast out demons, they actually were taking the name of the Lord in vain. They were taking the name of the Lord in vain. They were using the name in a a, a worthless, useless, hopeless manner. This is certainly a warning to every minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to know the Savior intimately. To know the Savior intimately because tampering with evil spirits apart from the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ can be a risk business. As these sons of Sceva learned at a great cost. Think about what they learned. Remember, they're out there like those other itinerant Jewish exorcists. In verse 14, also they were seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priests who... Uh, sons of Sceva, Jewish pre- chief priests, who did so. In other words, they were doing this kind of exorcism. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Jesus I know, Paul I know. By the way, in the Greek, there's two different words for the word know here, and I'll explain, to them, I'll explain that in just a moment. Jesus I know, Paul I know. But well, who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Seven sons of a chief priest faced one demon-possessed man. And the demon-possessed man had more power than those seven sons. And he leaped on him. I, I, can, I, I can't even explain what all of this, you know, meant, but, you know, he just probably bounced from one to the other and ripping clothes off. And, and they were, you know, overwhelmed. They probably went out crying. <laughs> Without any clothes, by the way. And I have to say that the story would be funny if it wasn't so pitifully sad. They invoked the name of Jesus, but since they didn't have a personal relationship with the Savior, they then invoked the name of Paul. But their scheme didn't work at all. Essentially, the demon spoke through the possessed person these words. Jesus, I recognize, and I'm, I'm giving this as literal as I can. Jesus, I recognize and know by interaction and experience. You see, the word gnoscō is the word that is used there. Gnosko is the Greek word from which we get the word Gnostic from. Jesus, I recognize and know by interaction and experience. And as for Paul, I am very much acquainted with and understand. He knows about Paul. and knows about his ministry. And understands whom Paul serves. But then he says, but who are you? Who are you? And immediately this evil spirit pounced on the sons of Sceva with more power than that of seven men through the body of this possessed man, and enraged at their clumsy attempt to exorcise him by the two names that he feared the most. That was the evil spirit inside this one man. Enraged at these seven sons at their clumsy attempt to exorcise him by the two names that he feared the most. Jesus and Paul. This demon evidently knew that these men didn't know the ones they invoked. And the demons knew Jesus alright. They knew him. They knew him. And they trembled at His name. He had waged victorious war against them during His earthly ministry. Time and time again, Jesus was victorious over demons. Time and time again, He defeated Satan, their master. And as we've already seen, they couldn't stand against Him alone or by legion. They knew Jesus and they knew all about Him. I'm talking about the demons here. I'm talking about the evil spirits here. They knew Jesus and they knew all about Him. His virgin birth. They knew His perfect life. They knew of His omnipotent power, of His atoning death, of His triumphant resurrection, His glorious ascension, and even of His coming again. This is what the demons knew. Can we say the same? Can we say the same? Do we know him as well? We should. Actually, we should know him better. We should have a personal relationship, an intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. But the demons know about him, don't they? And the demon knew Paul too. I have to say that he was almost as much afraid of Paul as he was of Paul's master. You know, there are people who like to dabble in things of the occult. They don't see it as being wrong. They feel that they're on the side of good. You know, they'll, they'll wear crosses and crucifixes and talk about religious things. But without a relationship with Jesus Christ, a person messing with demons is in for trouble. You know, that even the great, uh, the great Archangel Michael didn't mess around with, with the devil himself, but, but simply stood behind the Lord's power. I would have to believe that even Michael was more powerful than than Satan himself. But listen to Jude 9, the verse of this one chapter book. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Still comes back to the Lord's power. Still comes back to the Lord's rebuke. And you see the power that we're dealing with here today. The power is in Jesus. The power is in Jesus. The power is not in rituals. The power is in Jesus, not in superstitions. The power is in Jesus, not in the superstitious use of names. Even His. It's not about knowing magic words. Or even incantations it's about knowing Jesus Christ personally and intimately before knowing Jesus. Where do you think we 've all been before we came to know Christ? Where were we? Well, the Bible tells us we were caught in, in the, in the devil 's trap in the devil's snare that 's what the bible teaches us we 're told in second Timothy chapter two verses twenty three through twenty six as paul is encouraging Timothy in the ministry he says we'll avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all able to teach patient and humility correcting those who are in opposition if God perhaps will grant them repentance by the way if you look at that phrase if God perhaps will grant them repentance Paul is telling us that repentance is a gift from God so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. There's a very simple lesson that we need to take home with us today. The lesson is this. Jesus came to set the captive free. Jesus came to set the captives free. The devil is here to make captives of men. The devil is here to enslave people. Jesus is here to set them free. That's a very simple thought, isn't it? Why is it so hard for us to understand that? Jesus sets us free. We were all snared by the enemy in one way or another. Yet, what happens when we come to the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and we realize our need for God's mercy and God's grace and God's salvation? Once we come to know the blessedness of his salvation, boy, we are set free, aren't we? We're set free. Free to worship him. Free to serve him. Free to say, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ, just like Paul said. And yet to think that the Lord looks at us as his sons and not as slaves. But we make ourselves bondservants. We've chosen to follow Christ. That's the freedom that we have in Jesus. But Satan continues to seek to keep people bound to sin, bound uh, to their desires, bound to this world, bound to the fears of this world. But the Lord has set us free from that. And when we pray to ask the Lord to come into our lives, what happens? When we pray to ask the Lord to come into our lives, we will have a power greater than Satan's. Did you know that? When we ask the Lord to come into our lives, we will have a power greater than Satan's. 1 John 4, verse 4 says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now shouldn't you rejoice over that? Shouldn't you just be giving thanks to God that the one who is greater than The enemy of this world and the enemy of our lives and the enemy of our souls is in us. Therefore, we have power greater than the enemies. I'd be rejoicing. I'm rejoicing now. Well, I sounds funny because i got this frog in my throat. I don't care. I'm rejoicing. Jesus even gives us authority over demons to those who follow him. Jesus gives authority over demons to those who follow Him. Luke chapter 10. Listen to what He says. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall be by any means hurt you. Now stop there for just a moment. Think about this. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. You know what Jesus is not saying? He's not saying, you know what, let's all get up and let's all go in the desert. Let's go find us some snakes. Let's go find us some scorpions. And let's just start trampling on them. That's ridiculous. He was sending out 70 men to be his servants. And they were going out into the the dangers of the world. But he was going to protect them. And he was going to keep watch over them. And they were going to have authority over these things. So, you know, be careful of of this thing that says, Oh boy, we have power over scorpions. You know, stand there and say, uh, You know, start arguing with a scorpion or wrestling with a snake. You know, don't become a snake charmer. That's not what this verse is all about. Because if you read the next verse, consider what it says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Don't be rejoicing in this kind of thing. That the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you are saved by the power of Almighty God. Through the work of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in that. Good morning. Are you all here today? Are you are you realizing that you ought to be rejoicing over these things? Unless you're just pondering them. If you're pondering, I'm sorry. don't mean to... You know, burst your bubble here, but... Man, this is something to get excited about. We are to rejoice because our names are written in heaven. So I want to ask you to ask yourselves this question. Ask yourself this question. Am I a person who just talks about Jesus or one who really knows Him? This is a question for the examination of our souls and our hearts this morning. Am I a person who just talks about Jesus Or one who really knows Him. Can we say, can we say with the Apostle Paul these words from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Paul has been talking about what he was when he had the confidence in his flesh. He talked about the fact that he was was born a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, he, he was circumcised the eighth day of the sons of Israel, and you know, he was, and it and goes on and on about, you know, all the things that he was and righteous and zealous, you know, and for the law and, and, and all this. Well, anyway, but he gets down to this verse. He says, But what things were gained to me, as a good Jew, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's a nice word to say dung or manure, fertilizer. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know Him. There it is. That I may know Him intimately and personally. And all there is to know about Him. And the power of His resurrection. And the fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death. Knowing Him so well that we can understand that we are conformed to His death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Don't expect to rise from the dead if, you know unto glory unless you have died with Christ. That I may know Him because what had taken place would have taken place with these men, these seven sons of Sceva. And how this one demon through this possessed man just beat the crud out of them. And I, and I got to tell you, you know, there are people today, there are people today who don't believe in God, they don't believe in the power of God, they don't believe in the existence of God, but they also don't believe that there are any miracles, they don't believe that there really is any kind of... uh, uh, demonic oppression in other words they just don't believe anything but I can tell you that this world is full of evil because God's word is true that when man fell man man fell so far that he walked away from the God who created him in his own image the evil that we have today you know, it just doesn't, you know, just to think, let's just take one person, I've always mentioned this, but we take that one person named Adolf Hitler and say, you know, it, that, that was the essence of evil in, in, in some of our own lifetimes here. Who had a, a demonic obsession to destroy six million, over almost seven million Jews, to wipe them all out. And that continues to be an obsession of other people. But think about it, the evil that it takes to have that. You cannot tell me that that just is is some kind of a blip in the evolutionary process. There's evil in this world. Back in the late 1980s, I was at a conference, Calvert Chapel Pastors Conference in California. And uh, uh, it was up in a different place than where the Bible College is today. It was up in the mountains of the San Bernardino Mountains. Beautiful place and a little smaller setting. And uh, there was a call that came into the conference center for some pastors to go down to a church down the road a bit. Uh, There was a lady there that was showing signs of demon uh, possession and oppression. And Pastor Chuck Smith couldn't go because he had a guest speaker, and so he sent uh, Raul Reese and uh, Mike McIntosh and Don McClure and Greg Laurie. These are all Calvary pastors. But anyway, they, they all went down there, and, and um, certainly they, they they ran into somebody who was not only demon-possessed, but uh, carried a tremendous amount of power in them. It was a, a lady not very tall, but when they tried to pray for her, she actually threw these men a good distance from her. If you know anything about Raul Rees, you know that he's a black belt, kung fu master, whatever, you know, and he was a marine you know, and all of that, but man, she just threw him a good distance when he tried to hold her down. Eventually they prayed for her and eventually she was delivered and she came to know the Lord. But, but, but these things actually happen. They're really happening today. What happened then is not just a nice story to talk about the difference between evil and good. These things are even happening still. So what does it do? What did this particular incident do? Well, if you look at verses 17 to 20 now, getting back to our text. After this took place, after this took place upon these men... That they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Notice verse 17. This became known (coughs) both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. Word got around fast. And fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Isn't that interesting? Fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it told them 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Jesus' name was magnified in this. Because had the exorcism succeeded, had they used the name of Jesus and Paul and, and this demon had fled from this, this person, it would have discredited and cheapened the name of Jesus Christ. And then it would have also discredited and cheapened the ministry of the church in Ephesus. But instead, the Lord used the scheme to defeat the enemy, to defeat the devil, and to bring conviction to all the believers who were still involved with occultic practices. Again, you look at verse 18. Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. In other words, I better come clean here. And instead of bringing disgrace to the name of Jesus, his name was magnified because of the outcome of the event. And because of this, God's word would spread even more speedily and would prevail all the more, as it says in verse 20. Go back to verse 18 for just a moment, because I think this has some connection to us in our day and time. Verse 18, when read literally, would read that the people who believed kept coming, kept confessing and kept telling their deeds God was was showing his power in that you don't mess with the name of Jesus and you don't even mess with those who really know Jesus like Paul And the last two verses of our text deal with the gathering and the burning of all their manuals dealing with sorcery and the magical arts and this by the way was not an act of censorship please understand this This was not an act of censorship, it was an act of the will. They were saying, we're cleaning house. Nobody told them to destroy these books, nobody told them to gather them together, nobody told them to burn them. They did it on their own, they did it willfully, because they didn't want this junk in their homes any longer. And Christians, if you have anything that in your homes that has uh, anything to do with the occult or the occultic practices of of the past, that used to be like games to some of us. For example, the Ouija board. I would just get rid of it. Destroy it. Don't give it to anybody else. Get rid of it. See, they didn't give any of their stuff to anybody else. They cleaned house. They destroyed it. Why? Because it was a dishonor to the name of Christ. In their home, and Ouija—I always uh, can't stand that Ouija board anyway. I, you know, ouija it doesn't—you know—when you when you look at the name, it doesn't even look like the way it sounds. You know, Ouija it sounds dumb, looks dumb too. You know, but, but, but I have to tell you, over the years we've had people come and say, man, we've had some kind of oppression in our home and all of this. And the first thing we ask is, do you have anything, you know, related to the occult in your house? No, well, I don't know. You know we've we got a Ouija board. You let us get, out, get out of there. No wonder you have an oppression, you know. And these things are real. These forces are real. to Deal with them. So they cleaned house. It affected their hearts so much. We are not going to let anything get in the way of us knowing Christ, knowing Him intimately, knowing Him personally, and growing in Him. So, in doing so, they renounced any and all remaining connections to the demonic. In effect, they disregarded with value whatever value they might have had by counting the cost. Rather, they repented and turned from their sins. The 50,000 pieces of of silver or drachmas or whatever you might say in your translation. When they figured it out, with all the money that they had gathered together, the, the cost of what was destroyed, it would have, you could look at two ways. You could look at it as it would have been enough wages for one man for 138 years. Or it would have been enough wages for one hundred and thirty eight men for one whole year a whole wage of a yearly wage so when you think about that 's a lot that 's a lot of money it 's a lot of money being spent on on the magical arts on on the occultic practices of people today, but they didn 't count the cost. they repented they turned and they came to Christ. Charles Spurgeon writes this, he says, you will have enough temptation in your own mind without going after these things. Is there any habit, any practice that you have got that defiles your soul? If Christ loves you, and you come and trust in Him, you will make short work of it. Have done with it, and have done with it forever. Get rid of it, and get rid of it forever. So now we can better understand the words of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who knew Jesus and loved Him and loved serving Him, knew Him and had fellowship with Him intimately and personally. Now we can understand these words. In Philippians 3 again, verses 7 and 8, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Paul's problem was not demonic practices or occultic practices or occultic things. But even still, religious things can get in the way. Legalistic things can get in the way of the grace of God. And he says, "I have counted a loss these things as a loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and I that I may know Him, that I may gain Him." That I may know Him. The exorcists had failed. The exorcists had failed because they did not know Jesus Christ. They did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And folks, let me just give you the simple statement. Demons would not submit to them because they were not men submitted to God. Demons would not submit to them because they were not submitted to God. With that in mind, I close with these same two questions I asked you earlier. But maybe they will make a little more sense now. Do you want to be a friend of Jesus or just a casual acquaintance? I hope you choose to be a friend of Christ. I hope you choose to let Him show you His love. I think the greatest scripture for Valentine is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And may I say to you that it isn't you're trying to be good that's going to save you. And it's not you and trying to be good that's going to keep you. Because all of our efforts are just filthy rags before the Lord. It is the righteousness of Christ. It is the work of Christ. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that matters. And if you believe this, and you confess it with your mouth, and you confess him with your mouth, and you believe in your heart that the Lord is risen from the dead, it says in Romans chapter ten that you will be saved. And you will know Jesus Christ. And then you will have a lifetime before Christ comes for his church. You'll have a lifetime to develop that relationship and to cultivate that relationship by reading God's word, by by praying and by fellowshipping with other believers who love Jesus as well. You see the importance of not any longer being called a slave or a servant, but being called a friend. Don't leave here without Jesus. First of all, as your Lord and as your Savior. But don't leave here without Him being your friend as well. Let's pray.